Hello, friends, and welcome to episode three of the Voluntold podcast, where our mission is to spread hope, help, and healing to veterans, their community, our country, and the world. I'm Julia Jones, your host, and I invite you to pull up a chair and grab your coffee as we chat with one of our newest friends, Tracy, an Air Force veteran, and hear her incredible comeback story. May her story inspire you like it has us. Thank you for joining us here today, Tracy. Thanks, Julia, for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's the honor is all ours. So you were an Air Force vet, um, and from what you've told me, you went around the world in a short amount of time. And uh, it was, to me, to hear your story of all the different places you traveled was so exciting. Um, <laughs> what was the motivation, motivating factor that um, made you join the Air Force? Um, I think the motivating factor for me to join was probably my brother, who um, he joined the Air Force, I think, four years before me. And I was kind of a a wayward teen, I guess you could say, and I had no idea what – I didn't even really care what I was going to do. But um, he kind of guided me in that direction, and he said, you know, it'll give you – a job and they'll give you a paycheck and you'll get to travel. And I'm like, um, okay, where do I, where do I sign up? So, um, I actually didn't pass the ASVAB the first time that, um, I took it and I didn't get a high enough score to go into the air force. So that was a huge bummer. Um, but they allowed me to test again and I actually got two points above the uh, minimum requirement. So then I was able to join, um, and basically that's how that started. It just, it just, I was excited to travel, so. And, and what was the job that you did in the Air Force? So I, so I was assigned to, I didn't have a guaranteed job when I first went into basic training. So I think it was during basic training, um, they, I went through a, a testing thing again, and they gave me the option of a few jobs. And one of them was um, traffic management office. And so that was basically transportation. Um, which is when you basically you're shipping the cargo and you're shipping the passengers um, during wartime and, you know, outside of wartime. Um, but you're the people that people go, people that um, dependents and um, military members go to when they're deploying or when they're moving. So we help ship all your stuff. We get you to where you're supposed to go and we get all of the cargo where it's supposed to go. So pretty much it. And you are able to not only, um, take care of people's cargo, but you can travel around the world also? Yes, yeah, so that job is at every location um, worldwide. So that was, a, that was a good thing about my job is that it wasn't just isolated to just a few bases like some careers are. Um, I could go to any base and I would find um, my AFSC there. I assume that's your job. That's your yes. job building, right? Tight. Yes, yes, yes. That sounds pretty exciting, especially since you had no idea what you wanted to do, and but you wanted to travel. Um, can, you, can you recall how many different um, Air Force bases that you worked at? Um, so I, my first duty assignment was at Shepard Air Force Base in Texas, and I was there for, I think, a, a little over a year, maybe just a year. Um, 
and when I was there, I decided that that wasn't it wasn't a good spot for me. So I um, volunteered for an assignment to Korea. Um, so I got those orders pretty quick, and I think within a month or two, I was in Korea, and I did a year there. Um, that was a remote assignment where you can't bring your families. Um, I didn't have a family at the time, so it didn't affect me in that way. Um, but it was a pretty intense assignment because you do a lot of uh, wartime um, exercises constantly. Um, because you're because when I was stationed there, and I don't know how it is now, but um, it was an armistice agreement between North and South Korea. Um, so we were still technically, you know, always um, propped and ready to go um, if need be. So um, there was no time to relax, and you were just constantly, you know, in a state of ready, I guess. Um, so with that remote assignment, because not a lot of people want to go to Korea, um, they offer kind of an incentive, um, which will it's called a it's called a follow-on assignment. So if you take the Korea, if you take the remote assignment, if you accept it, um, they try to get you to they try to get your next base to someplace that you really want to be. So um, the United Kingdom, REF Lake and Heath was on that list, and I I said, please, oh my gosh, that would be so awesome. And I actually did get my follow-on. So as soon as I was done with Korea, I went to REF Lake and Heath, and I was there for three years. And that's in, um, that's in England, just um, the south part of England, about an hour away from London. Um, I had a good time there. Um, I, I volunteered for a TCN um, detail, which is the third country national, um, um, third country national security detail, and that was over in Kuwait, uh, Kuwait by Kuwait City International Airport. Um, basically, all I did there was walk around with an M16 and um, guard people from other like Pakistan or India. They come and they'd work, and they were building up our base for us. So they were hard labor hard labor workers, um, and you'd be assigned, you know, a few a few of them just to one person. So I think the most I ever had was maybe six or nine, not too sure, but. Um, the, the difficult part about that assignment was um, being a female over in that region. Um, it was, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, it was my first time being deployed in that region, you know, and, and so um, I didn't know what to expect and I didn't really worry too much, but it was, an inter- it was interesting getting there. So the story behind getting there is that um, me and one other airman, uh, we – we got orders at the same time to go, so we met and we um, got to know each other a little bit. And when we were flying into, we were supposed to get um, a flight, a an, an military flight out of Italy. Well, they closed the um, airfield in Kuwait um, at Kuwait, was it El Jaber? I think that's where we were flying into. So they had closed the tarmac for some reason, so we had to fly in commercially. Um, so... It took us a little longer, and they had actually had to change our orders to reflect to tell us exactly how to dress since we were flying mm-hmm. commercially into that region. Um, we couldn't wear uniforms. Um, we were supposed to go. We went to the BX. We had to buy all black clothes, all long sleeved, button up, black shoes, black pants. Just you know, um, a very conservative dra- <laughs> uh, clothing. Um, so that was kind of like my first indicator of, of okay, where I'm going it probably does not. Uh, is not anything that I've ever even even thought I would experience in my lifetime. Um, so we were waiting. We were in Germany waiting to get on the commercial air, air, aircraft into flying into Kuwait City International. And um, 
I got up like I normally do um, and to get in line to get onto the plane, and I stepped in front of a man. Uh, I think he was a Kuwait citizen. I'm not sure. Um, and I think the thing that scared me the most was the attitude and looks I got from the um, Kuwait national females. I thought that they were going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, not a good start to a trip no it wasn't and I had and I was just getting on the plane and I think it I don't remember how long the flight was maybe six hours so I was on a plane for six hours in a tube with a bunch of people who I felt wanted to kill me already just for just for getting up in front of the man um who was getting in line I, I stepped in front of him and that was not okay so that was my first uh experience with that culture that's not um, um, that's not really a warm a warm feeling to have. It wasn't. No, it wasn't warm and fuzzy. Um, anyway, we landed and they swooped us up from the airport, um, and we you know drove back drove to the base, and I was working with security forces for this um, little deployment. Um, so basically, what you do is you all the all the third country nationals that are coming into the base to work every morning, they go through a security check. It's kind of, it's a little more intense than something you go through at the airport. Um, but it, so we, we would want, we'd search them, wand them. Um, and then we would, all of us would gather into the vehicles that were going to the different sites and we'd, we'd go there and we'd do that for the day. And it was, you know, 120 degree heat. Um, one time it was like a hundred percent humidity, which I'd never experienced in my life. I couldn't understand because it wasn't raining out. It was fog but the um my uniform my my BDU top was soaked from the moisture in the air and it was just crazy the weather there was insane very um intense um so then i came back after that uh exciting deployment and um it was right as about 2 weeks before 911 happened when i came back um and then i found out I guess I could I can say this. I found out I was pregnant, and I was actually pregnant the whole time I was doing that work over in Kuwait. So, oh wow, yeah, I was the whole first trimester I was um, doing that. So walking around by myself with an M16 in 120 degree heat, um, guarding a bunch of strange men. It was, <laughs> I don't know. God was definitely on my side. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'm sure that you know you were in such austere surroundings and. So things were happening with your body that you weren't even, like, used to just because you were in such strange settings, you know, trying to get used to the heat, the humidity. Um, the stress. Yeah, the stress. And so you didn't even recognize that something was changing. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I just I knew. I can see that. I just felt tired all the time, and I'm like, oh, it's just the heat. You know, I I don't know. So, and – I just thought it was the heat and the stress. Didn't really think too much of it. Um, so then coming back to my um, home station, which was still at Lake and Heath in, in England, um, I ended up, you know, I had I had the baby and um, I was a single mom. Um, and then uh, I had my 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 stepdad back home, who I was really really close with, was had congestive heart failure, and I just kind of felt like my time over in Europe was it was coming to an end. I needed to kind of settle down more. And my dad was sick, and I wanted to be be close. I wanted to be back home, and plus I had a baby, you know, and I was by myself, so I needed a 
a bit more of a support system. Um, so I actually, the assignments that came up for me were actually, there was like one for Oklahoma and then one for Shepherd Air Force Base, Texas. I was like, really? Oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to go back there, but I guess there's always a silver lining. You know, I knew people there, I knew the civilians there, um, and I knew the area. So it wouldn't, that would just be one last thing that I'd have to, you know, worry about. Um, and I came back and my dad passed away about a month later. So oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, he lived a good long life and he was a Marine. So uh, he was also one of the, one of the people that um, encouraged me to go into the military. So well, I'm sure that it was such a blessing to be back there to spend his last month with him. Yeah, it was. It was time to come home. Sometimes you just know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so so then uh, I ended up getting stationed back at Shepherd, which was interesting because when I left, I was only on E1, I think, so just an airman. And then when I came back, I had, to be, I, um, had earned my uh, staff sergeant. So I was an NCO, so non-commissioned officer. Um, and I was in charge of some people, and I was just in a t- completely different role. Um, so that took some people, including myself, some time to get used to. You know, they'd look at me and they'd be like, Aaron Lively, you know, or that was my main name. Um, and I'd be like, uh, Sergeant, you know, <laughs> this, um, you know, you've got to call me Sergeant <laughs> to the civilians and stuff. But um, I got, I did get orders to deploy to Baghdad. And I, um, after I think about a year of being back at Shepherd, I think, so I don't know, it was like about, it was 2004 when I went to Baghdad, and I came in 2003. I came back from the state from I came back to the states in 03. Um, so I deployed to Baghdad, um, and it was a rough time over there. It was during the first elections um, for the Iraqi people, um, and I would I would leave the leave the base with my um, other NCO who was pretty awesome. And we would go and we'd find missing shipments of um, flak vests and helmets and boots and things like that that, that you know, were just lost, that we knew had been shipped and things would calm down enough for us to be able to leave to go kind of search and find out what was going on with all of our equipment and cargo. Um, and, yeah, so that was a very ex- uh, exciting time in my life. And then you, I, I assume you returned to Shepherd after that and um, left active duty at that point? That is true, yes. So I mean, you've been a lot of places, and that's a, that sounds like a really exciting career. Um, was your time in the Air Force um, as you had envisioned it? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and and how, um, how, why would you say that? Um, I think I kind of knew that it was going to be harder as a female, um, you know, going in, but I never really experienced anything. I mean, I was 17 when I joined, so my life experience was nothing. (laughs) Um, but so in my, I'll just kind of go back a little bit. So my first duty assignment, my, my, one of my supervisors, I was the first female, um, he'd ever had, he'd ever had work for him in the warehouse where you're driving forklifts, you're working, you're woodworking, you're using, you know, heavy equipment, big trucks. Um, it was a male dominated career field when I came into what, it. What year was this? 97, 98. Okay, so not too long ago. But woman who he had worked with. Well, yeah. And I guess that it wasn't something, it wasn't like they had never had fe- other females 
um, in my career field. It's just that for some reason, this guy had gotten his way. He would not, he did not want to have females. And then times were changing and they were like, nope. And this is how it's got to be, you know? So they, and I didn't want to work for him because he was mean. He was old, grumpy, and mean. And, um, <laughs> and I had a lot to learn. I didn't think that they would actually, honestly, I didn't think they'd be putting me in that part of the career field. I thought they'd keep me up in the, at the front desk, you know, where typically that's where they put the females. Um, but this was part of my job and I had to learn it. Um, so one of my first, uh, experiences with him was he didn't want me touching the forklift. He didn't want me touching the saws. He didn't want me, uh, doing anything except cleaning up. So he actually had, there was these things we call foxtail brushes and mm-hmm. they kind of, yeah, I, people probably know I know what a foxtail is. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so he threw it at me because he wanted me to clean it. He said, you, he, he, he was like, here, you clean it up. And just yelling at me all the time. He was angry at the fact that they had, you know, that he was losing control of his section and, you know, there was a female in there and he didn't want her there. Um, anyways, I busted my ass and I worked hard and I started giving him back, I started giving him shit back. And he did, <laughs> it did something to him where um, he ended up liking me a lot. And I really liked him at the end of it. We were just... So- he was kind of like a father figure, perhaps. I don't know about that, but nope. <laughs> we went back and forth, and um, I showed him that I'm just as good as any any other any other airman that he's had back there. It didn't matter if I was a female or a male. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I worked a lot harder than a lot of the, the men he'd ever trained. So um, he saw that, and then when I got my orders to Korea, he at my they had a little going away party in in the, uh, one of the warehouses for me, um, and he actually he was a Vietnam vet. And he actually wore a black band around his arm. And one of my old supervisors came up to me and she was like, uh, he never has done that before. You really must have made an impression on him. He might, he's going to really miss you. And I'm like, really? Because I felt the same way about him, you know, even though our, we went back and forth all the time. Um, but I was going to miss him, too. He taught me a lot. Um, and he taught me that I can pretty much, I can do hard things, you know, and I don't have to be afraid. Um, and so... Uh, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, but um, I remember when he when he would yell at me all the time and put me down in the beginning. Uh, I didn't. I never cried or anything. I would laugh because that's just how I handle stress. I laugh. Um, I'm just one of those awkward people that laughs at times that she shouldn't. <laughs> so maybe he didn't think that he was being as mean as he was because I was laughing all the time. Um, but <laughs> he did have an effect. And I remember telling my mom, you know, I'd come home from being, you know, being at the warehouse and I'd come to my little dorm room and I'd call mom and um, she, and I'd tell her, I'd be like, yeah, this is crazy. This is what happened today. And she's like, people can't do that to you. And he, he, he should get in trouble. You, you need to tell somebody. I'm like, mom, everybody already knows. And this is the military. They can do whatever they want, you know? So that was kind of my um, attitude towards my treatment too. So you had said earlier that, you um, took this the, your next duty station in Korea, Korea, mm-hmm. um, kind of short notice. You know, you applied for it, and within a month you were gone. Mm-hmm. Um, what motivated you to um, take that quick assignment over there in Korea? So it definitely um, wasn't this supervisor because you had a lot of respect for him, right? 
I didn't end. realize at the end, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of um respect and, and love and admiration for him. But um I think that something well, something happened to me when I was living in the dorms and um I didn't quite understand the effect it would have on me. So um it was it was an assault and I became very withdrawn. Um I don't think I left my dorm room for like three or four months. Um and I felt I just felt really sick. And I think it was just because I was trying to deal with everything. You know, I was at a new place. I didn't know anybody. Um, I was learning a whole new job, still learning the lingo of military life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that happened, and I did not know what to do or how to handle it. I didn't want to tell anybody. Um, and and so I, I actually did end up saying something, and the person – um, he was not, it made, made things really hard for me. So, it made it worse. Yeah. So yes. was it a physical assault or was it a sexual assault? It was a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so I decided to basically run. That's what I think I was doing. I just needed to run. I needed to go and start over. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't go back home. Um, and I didn't want to give up, so that's why I volunteered to go to a place nobody ever wanted to go to. <laughs> and I knew so, at some point I was going to have to go to Korea anyways in my career, and I always kind of thought in my head, I'm going to do 20. You know, I want to make chief. I want to, you know, these. this is what I want to do with my life. So this sexual assault started you on your um, on your running journey. I guess you would say. Yes, but things things didn't get any better, though. So They didn't get any better. And how was that? Uh, I think with, uh, thing, with sexual assault, I think that um, it's hard to understand those emotions that you're feeling. And when something like that happens to you, you I think that you kind of feel like if you say anything um, – you're going to ruin that person's life. You know what I mean? And you, I got confused. I, you know, I was like, this didn't really happen, you know, whatever. But but the way I was acting and the things that I was doing, you know, on my personal time um, suggested the exact opposite. You know, I started drinking a lot, um, started doing things that were I'm not proud of. But basically I was just trying to, I guess, numb the emotion and feel normal and try to find, and I wanted to feel like I belonged. So you think you blamed yourself for um, the assault? Oh, yeah. I still do. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you know you're not at fault? Okay. <laughs> you, you, you're not. You know, he was a jerk. He should never have done that. He's probably more than a jerk, but um, we'll just leave it at that. Sounds good. Yeah. So... That's not a good way to start your uh, Air Force career. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a baggage. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people that come into the military, I think, already have baggage from their childhoods, which I did as well. So, I mean, there was there it was a lot of different things, but um, then then coming becoming a single mom, I didn't drink during the pregnancies, of course. Um, I smoked, but I didn't drink. Uh. When I found out I was pregnant, of course, I quit smoking. But 
that was a very stressful time too. So um, there's just, you know, there's just a lot of stress, a lot of stress Mm -hmm. and being able to deal with the rigidity of the military life and being a parent, being a single parent, along with all the stigma that is attached to um, single mothers and being a female and not being adequate in that aspect, you know, as far as being able to do your job or, you know, deploy along with your male counterparts and stuff. It's, it, it's just it's difficult. It's very hard. Yes, I would say it is very hard because you want to be, you you don't want anyone to put you down because you can't do your job. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't want anybody to signal, single you out because you're a female and say that you can't, you, you don't belong there. And, you know, there's times when I'm like, yeah, this is I, this is just how it is. It's just um, you just accept it and you just kind of move on. This is just my life. But when you tell people, civilians or people who, I mean, may, just civilians, some of the things that, that you experience just in your daily work, just in your work, daily work day, your regular work day, um, they can be like, holy crap, that happened? I'm like, yeah, all the time, you know? So... I think getting out and um, becoming a civilian, that was that was uh, one of the hardest things I think anybody can do. And I was a dependent. So I married um, a friend of mine from Korea, actually. We, we got married about five years after Korea, um, and he adopted my son. Um, he's a great man, and he's been very supportive. Um, but he uh, – it it's been hard on everybody. I don't know what to say. So you you said it's difficult um, to leave active duty, and then you married right back into the Air Force. So now you're dependent. <laughs> yeah. And how was that difficult? How oh, did, God. What, what did you experience? It was awful. I mean, it wasn't so bad at the base that I had, you know, separated at, because I still knew everybody at the unit. And... um but then when we got our first orders to a new duty station with just him being the military member, uh, I had no idea how difficult it was going to be. You know, I still felt like I was in the military because I was living on base. Nothing else had changed, really, except the fact that I'm staying home now. You know, I had um, – one of the reasons that I separated was because um, we – after we got married, we got pregnant and we ended up being twins. And the, the deployment rate between the two of us was just uh, every six months one of us was going. Mm. So in order to keep – and the things that my oldest had struggled with as a little – as a three-year-old, two-year-old, um, after I came back from Iraq, um, I did not want to put him through anymore, and I did not want to have a family life that was just unstable. You know, I'd grown up with that myself, and I did not want to ever have um, that be what my kids would go through. So, so going to our first duty station and living on base, um, I couldn't relate to the other spouses. I mean, they were they were never in the military. Uh, maybe one or two of them were, but they'd never deployed. So I had that baggage as well. And so I, I did not feel like I fit in. I was constantly on alert. Um, I was trying to be a mom, trying to deal with all of the crap that I'd already been through. Um, and I, it was it was. Um, would you say you were hard isolated? To, oh, yeah, totally isolated, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got out because I wanted to go to college and use my GI Bill, and I wanted to go into nursing at that time. Um, but 
and I did. I finished an associate's degree online because we were moving so much, so I decided to go online. Um, and I finished an associate's degree, which was a huge accomplishment for me. Um, and but but raising kids and trying to be normal for them and be a, have dinner on the table at five when you're waking up in a heightened you know emotional state because you've never dealt with your issues from living in a war zone and you know having other things happen have happened to you um, makes life almost it makes life unbearable. So were you um, ever diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress? So when I came back from Iraq, yeah, I was diagnosed with it. Like a month after I came back, I, I would not go see mental health on base because I was too afraid that they would kick me out if there was anything really wrong, you know. Um, but mm-hmm. Josh, my husband and I were having issues with, uh, with you know, reintegrating, I guess. So that's initially why I went. But then other things started coming out, and she would ask me questions like, you know, um, do you feel this and this? And I'm like, yeah. She was like, well, those are panic attacks. And I'm like, okay, I don't have panic attacks. What are you talking about? <laughs> and I had never heard of the word of PTSD. I'd never heard of it. So it was, I mean, I think I may have because I didn't want it to be assigned to my name. Um, but I, I just didn't believe it. And I, up until just about two years ago, I still didn't believe that that was an actual thing that I, 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 I have, you know? <laughs> Did you go to the vet um the VA? No, I would never go to the VA. I would never go. I went to I've been to the VA. Um that for me is I there's just it's too much sexual harassment. And go, just even getting out of an elevator one time, a guy was like and I was just going in there to I think get my picture taken for an ID card. So I wasn't even in there for very long. Uh a guy was like, "Oh, you know, look at you, you know, in the elevator. You look so pretty when you smile, stuff like that. And I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get in trouble, basically. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not going to take it anymore. That doesn't happen at a normal hospital. Oh, no, it doesn't. (laughs) So you've never gone for a a VA disability um, claim? I have. I did, um, I think, about a year after I got out, uh, I did, yes. And they gave me a, a rating, and um, I, I don't know. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. So so you're, you're dealing with a PTS, which you don't even acknowledge that you have. Mm-hmm. You're depressed. You I'm are. I'm drinking. Oh, oh, okay. So you're drinking. Um, yes. You're isolated. Um, are you dealing with depression? Very much so, you know, and I, and so I was going, I, I was going off base to, um, providers off base and I was, and I was diagnosed with, you know, depression and anxiety, uh, PTSD. And so, um, for my depression, which I'll accept that, you know, yes, I'm depressed. Yes, I have anxiety. Um, what can you help me? What can help me with this? And they're like, well, but maybe we need to try medication because nothing else. I just couldn't physically get off the couch to go do anything. And um, and I still had to take care of the kids and, you know, be there for my, my spouse when he came home and um, try to be normal, you know. So I started taking antidepressants. And, and after a few years of getting it right, they do help. I don't think I'll ever um, not be able to take them. 
So, so there's that, but I also drank on top of that. So, so you took the antidepressants and you drank. Antidepressants, many... anxiety medications, and drinking. That that's a great combination. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a good it's good we can laugh at it now. You know? <laughs> well, I'm a nervous laugher, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny, um, but you're making me laugh. <laughs> so when did you? Um, obviously, uh, you did not let this stop you. I mean, you've done a lot since you've left active duty. Um, did you ever um, believe that you were an alcoholic? Not until I started intense therapy. And the therapy was great. And then I would come home and I would even tell my therapist, oh, I'm going to go home, I'm going to go get me a tall boy because today was a good session, you know. <laughs> as soon as I got home, I'm cracking that baby open because that's just how I dealt with my emotions. And... um tried to subdue all of the stuff, you know. So she, we got to a point in our therapy relationship where she was like, Tracy, I think you have a problem with alcohol. I was like, you're crazy. That is, that nobody can have a problem with alcohol. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, the problem like, is oh. you don't get enough alcohol. That's the, right? that's the only problem, yeah. Okay. Um, so she actually sent me to an independent therapist who does alcohol or alcohol and substance abuse evaluations and I took a test it was like a bubble paper and I answered the questions and I was honest because I honestly believed I was not an alcoholic this is so stupid you know can't believe I'm even having to go and do this but it came back saying yes you are an alcoholic and I probably need inpatient treatment (laughs) so I definitely qualified on uh, the Richter scale for alcoholism but oh, I, I like was, that, the Richter scale. That's, the Richter that's, scale. Uh, <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. So I did not do inpatient therapy. I was too um, too full of pride to do that, and I was ashamed. And so I went without, and I basically locked myself in my bedroom for about seven days before I could really function. Um, uh, so it's a horrible experience. Sort of, okay. I guess, yeah. It's, you want to crawl out of your own skin. I would never recommend it. Oh, that sounds really, well, that sounds difficult, not only for you, but your husband, um, your children. Yes. Um, So did you ever attend Alcoholics Anonymous? I did. Um, I started going, I'm trying to remember. Um, I started going, when I finally stopped, I'd stopped drinking for, I think, maybe two weeks, and of course, I'm really irritated, you know, because I'm not drinking. And um, she said, she said, you know, she's like, I'm so proud of you. My therapist was great, uh, even though I was mean to her <laughs> because she was making me quit <laughs> drinking. Um, she, you know, she's like, I think that you probably would benefit from support, you know, because this is not something you should go through alone. So my spouse was like, well, let's try it, Trace, you know. I'm like, fine, okay, if you go with me. So he went with me. I went, I went, I wore a hat, I wore a big sweater, then I covered my, tried to pull my, the the brim of my hat down over my face because I didn't want anybody to really, you know, see me or know me. And I'm in there and I'm like, I didn't, I should not be here. This is ridiculous. I feel so dirty. Like I just felt awkward. It was not fun. And I could not wait for that hour to be over with. 
Because you um, weren't one of those people. You were no, not. no, no, not me. No, uh, uh-uh. uh. But then I'm listening to their stories, and they resonated so, so deeply inside of my soul <laughs> that I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe it. Like the so stories they were out- saying, it was me. They were telling my story, and I never met these people. You found out you were one of them, and you had a lot in common with them. Absolutely. Wow. Yep. And you were so mad at your therapist. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, I don't know, something, something, something inside me said push through this. Maybe, you know, I think something inside me knew that I was changing and I was not who um, I wasn't fulfilling the person that the universe wants me to be. So how long, how many years have you been clean and sober? So uh, I have relapsed, um, but it's been two years since I've started. Okay, that's awesome. I mean, AA. Mm -hmm. How many years were you um, a heavy drinker? Or, I mean, because I guess once you're an alcoholic, people consider themselves to always be an alcoholic. I guess, yeah. Yeah, how long um, were you a heavy drinker? That you... I started I started really heavily drinking um, probably when I got to Korea. So that was in 1999. So from 99 to 2016. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So what would you say to other people who, um, or other women, who may have experienced the same things um, you have experienced would you recommend them to go to Alcoholics Anonymous? Sure. I mean, it's a start. Um, if they think that they really are ready for that, you you kind of have to know inside that you're ready for something, and it sucks to acknowledge that about yourself. Um, you're already feeling, you know, pretty crappy about life in general. I was even suicidal at the time. Um, suicidal at, at um, in 2016? When the, yeah, the, through, throughout. I've been suicidal probably since, uh, really since I since I separated. So, for since two, about 2006, off and, and on. And how did you? And, and did you use alcohol to cope with that? Yes, I used alcohol to pass out and stop thinking. Stop thinking. And what do you think? Because um, you said you were suicidal. Did you ever um, do any? Uh, any attempts to end your life or was it just something you thought about that you weren't worth living well this is kind of a um, not something I've really ever shared but there there's been times when I've you know held a bottle of pills and just like this is it I can't take it anymore and this is this is it this is what I have to do I just can't live like this I can't live can't deal with this anymore it's, and there's no hope and every everybody's better off without me I'm such a mess you know but the truth of the matter is suicide makes things a million times worse for the ones that you love so that's something that someone told me I think it's like the estimated amount of um, psychotherapy for children who lose a parent to suicide is like 20 years of intensive psychotherapy oh my goodness so what stopped you you had those pills in your hand. What stopped you? I'm not sure. I think 
I thank God. I think my, you know, just the love for my children, mm-hmm. love, hope for a better life, some sort of hope. That That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us, Tracy. Thanks, Julia. I, you know, we had talked earlier and you, um, you had said that during this time period, um, you had a hard time like leaving your couch and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think it was your mom who encouraged you to volunteer. Yeah. Yep. My mom, she said, you know, maybe go volunteer, get out of the house, get, you know, pick yourself up. <laughs> and I'm like, don't tell me what to do. But then after I'm off the phone with her, I sit there and I, I, you know, ruminate and I think, oh, okay, well, maybe. So something better than nothing. So I call the first time I volunteered, well, I started helping out in the kids' classrooms just for like an hour a day. That would, that would just, that was like my little tiny baby step. Um, I did not like doing it because I wanted things to be quiet all the time. And mm. then going to the school was like, that's not how it is there, obviously. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of noise going on in classrooms. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I would actually get stressed out thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to make all these copies that this teacher needs made? And, and how do I, you know, it was weird because I could handle, I used to really handle a hell of a lot more than that, you know. But baby steps. And I figured it out and I made a couple of acquaintances and they, you know, people were really nice and they helped and showed me how to do things. And then I was like, okay, I can't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> I need something separate from the kids. So, well, it's hard. I mean, if you don't have a gift for teaching or being around children, that can be stressful. Very stressful, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so then I, there was a, they needed volunteers at the food bank in town. It was really close to my house. And so um, I somehow got on board with them. And the lady who hi- who uh, hired me as a volunteer, I guess she was a volunteer coordinator. Um, I didn't know this at first, but towards the end of my time there, she, I found out she was a recovering alcoholic and a member of AA. And this is way, way before I'd ever thought that I had a problem, you know. Um, I guess maybe a little part of me knew all along that there was an issue. Um, I just didn't ever admit it. So so anyways, working at the food bank was probably my first step out into, you know, getting out of my own head, basically. And um, it was it was interesting because I was, I was stocking cans on a shelf, and, and um, that's what I did. I stocked cans, and I, but I did a damn good job of it, you know, and I worked <laughs> in the sweat. And they were like, you know, oh, my gosh, it's really nice to have somebody here who works so hard and – you know, because a lot of people that are there with you are court mandated. They have to do some community service or, you know, something like that. But you're, you're volunteering on your own. You're volunteering to be there. Just like you, you know, just like when I volunteered to join the military. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. You found so that, value. I, are you, is that what you're saying? You found value and I, purpose? I did. I did. And some of the people that worked there regularly the employees, you know, they were pretty hard to impress because they'd seen it all. And so when they opened up and were like, we really like having you here, um, it meant a lot, you know, and that made me want to come back and do more. So I started spending more hours there and started getting into more of the paperwork portion of it and putting information into the computer for them and things like that. And then I started working at the front counter and dealing with the actual patrons, which was hard because I wasn't used to being around people anymore, you know? So 
that took a lot of um, energy, I guess you could say, to do that. So this is like the first step that brought you out of your shell, out of your isolation. Yeah. Yep. And then what did you do after that? Your kids are getting. Um, so yeah, the kids are getting. Yeah, the kids are getting older, and they're joining. You know, they're in sports teams and things like that, and. They never have enough people stepping up to do things. For, they don't have enough coaches for the kids. They don't have enough people to help, you know, be uh, team parents to help coordinate things for the teams and stuff like that. So I was like, you know what, I'll do it. I'm not going to sit here and just wait for someone else to. So I volunteered to start doing all that, and I've been – and I've done that for years. And it's not an easy – it's not an easy gig because you're dealing – because some of these sports teams, you know, you've got 30 kids on the team, football teams especially – um, and then you've got, you're dealing with the parents and you're dealing with the grandparents and, um, and the coaches <laughs> and it's, it can be pretty intense. It just depends on the dynamic of the group, but it really, it does help you get, you know, feel worth, you get a lot of worth from it and you feel a lot more less than I should say. That's, that's kind of how I felt. Cause after I got out of the military, um, you know, I would compare myself to other, other, you know, veterans that I'd joined with who were, you know, progressing through the ranks and they, you know, going on 10 years now, going on 15 years, 20. And I'd compare myself and be like, I'm such a damn loser. I I couldn't keep up with it, you know, and I thought I could, but so I'd compare myself to everything. I'd compare myself to my neighbor across the street, you know, who's a nurse or has has their degree, um, college degree, which I, you know, never finished. Um, And, it was just always just this constant comparing comparative brain that I I would call it comparative brain. I don't know where I got that term from. But it sounds like a great term because I think <laughs> we all have that, you know, where we try to compare ourselves against the people around us the, or people, people who we think are better off or better than we are. Yeah. And um, I think I kind of felt like nobody ever thought I was going to ever amount to anything. And then I was kind of becoming that, uh, that person that I, that I thought people would thought I would be, you know what I mean? Like a nobody. Um, so it was hard to deal with. It felt like I was a real failure at life. Did you and feel invisible? Totally invisible. And then I felt ashamed, you know, because I was such a failure. And then, you know, my, my, you know, my spouse is still active duty military and I'd go to functions and I'd just sit there and no one knew, you know, that I'd ever served before. So they talked to you differently and stuff like that. And it was just, it's like, I felt like a ghost. So being um, a coordinator for these um, sporting events and the team, did that boost your confidence? Yes, it did. Because at the end, everyone's so appreciative, you know, and because, you know, we wouldn't have had a season without someone stepping up to do this and all the time that you put into it um, and to make it good for the kids. And the kids, you know, they call me Mama Schultz, and wow. I love it. It's just, it's great. I mean, it's a really good feeling to know that, that they have the, that the energy that you put out there into the community is appreciated and, that's, you know, and that you're still needed. That's awesome. That That's awesome. And so after this, you step back into the school system? So the boys, you know, my boys were growing up, and um, there was an opportunity in the school that I was kind of working at, um, not getting paid hardly anything. Uh, <laughs> but I used a lot of my old military um, training to 
to help. I felt like I was helping protect the kids, you know. You know, my head was always on a swivel, and I know that's kind of a cliche term. But I think I – what were you doing? What were you doing? So I was outside, and I was doing what they call a noon duty, and so it's the person on – it's a recess aide. Um, And I would just be out there watching the kids, making sure everybody's okay, making sure they're acting right, and making sure that nobody's trying to – take them or, you know, or do anything that, you know, I'm just there to protect. I felt like, I felt like um, a working dog. You know what I mean? Like I had a purpose every day, go for two hours, do my little job and come home. And so it was it, almost like, it was probably almost like volunteering because I doubt they paid you very much. It was, yeah, that's, I didn't even care about the paycheck. I mean, it wasn't worth looking at. It was kind of depressing actually. <laughs> uh, so now that you've, uh, you're, you, you've moved on from recess duty, and um, the school has desired, um, decided that you really have a lot to offer them, and they turned around and offered you a job doing what? So I am kind of like the gatekeeper. Um, so, and the building is pretty, it's, it's pretty secure. I work with the school resource officer a lot, and then my counter, you know, my counterparts in the office. We we screen everybody that comes into the building. We make sure that um, if there's any custody issues or anything like that, that we're, you know, helping to enforce those orders and make sure the kids are safe, um, communicating with the parents um, if anything happens at school, you know, things like that. But basically we're just vetting everybody that comes through that door, and they're not getting through that door if, they're not, if they don't have any business being there. So How does it gives, make you feel? Like I have a purpose. I have a true purpose. And – I know it's not some, you know, glamorous job, but I feel like it, I feel like it, um, it suits me for right now. I don't think, I think if you look at um, most people's jobs, they would not classify them as glamorous. Um, <laughs> but what what you're doing is, um, you know, is so vital these days. You know, you are the gatekeeper protecting those children. Um, and I, and I know that you may not get, a lot of accolades and there may be parents who get mad at you because they forgot their ID card or whatever. But mm-hmm. in the end, I'm, you are greatly appreciated. And what you're doing is a, a great benefit to the school. I hope so. I feel like it is. So tell me what you're doing now. Um, as far as uh, working in um, with female veterans. Well, okay, so this is very recent. This has just started within, I think, since December, um, so just a couple of months. Um, I've started, there's a, I live in Idaho, and um, Idaho has a Facebook group that um, connects female veterans with each other in their local regions. Um, the main place is Boise, which is quite a ways away from me. I'm up in North Idaho where it's more rural. Um, and um, so I started up a little, not, I haven't started up, but I've kind of starting to coordinate for our group, for the Boise group, um, up here in our region. So, um, anybody, any female veterans in the Idaho area can look up Idaho Female Veterans Network, IVFN, um, on Facebook, and you have to apply to be, you know, apply to become a member and be accepted, quote unquote, into the group. Um, but basically, we just we're trying to get together once a month to, um, you know, just get together and do things with other female veterans who can relate to um, 
you know, have similar issues, who can relate to military life and um, uh, transitioning into our community, you know, So, so you don't necessarily have meetings. You just meet to support and encourage each other. Is that what I hear you saying? Well, yeah. Well, we're, we just, we get together to, we're trying to do activities like um, coming up next or in two weeks, we're having a paint night. So we're getting together and we're going to just, one of our female veterans is going to um, lead it and she's going to teach us how to do a paint, uh, paint, paint a picture. Um, kind of like one of those um, wine paint nights. I think those yep. are pretty popular everywhere, but no wine. <laughs> <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> At least for Tracy. um so yeah so i I got a lot of support from the from the gals down in boise and um they're they're all really supportive and very excited that we're starting this up up here um and we started with two members and every month that we've met we've had one more person join so it kind of feels like i'm actually doing something you know and i love the people that i've met so far we're all different but it's just easier to talk to them for some reason you know, I, I don't, I can't explain it. It just kind of feels like home. Hmm. Yeah, because you have connections, even though you might not have the exact same experiences. Mm-hmm. I bet um, you might not have even been at the same duty stations, but, um, you know, they can relate to um, being sexually assaulted or they had a friend who was sexually assaulted or um, PTSD or um, being depressed or alcoholism, um, there's a wide variety of things that you've experienced in your life that other female veterans have experienced. And um, I think it brings us together, you know, mm-hmm. when we um, can share our experiences like you're doing. And it doesn't have to be anything formal, like you said, just getting together for activities and, and normal conversation will happen. Mm-hmm. And and you trust each other. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's really easy. And so when I when we had our first meeting, I was really nervous, of course, as usual. And I wrote um, on Facebook Messenger. I wrote the lady who runs the group down in Boise, and I'm like, so I'm like, what am I even doing? This is so really not like me. I'm not the kind of person that socializes very much. But for some reason, there I feel like there needs to be female veterans need a place to go. Because we, I don't feel, I, for me anyway, I don't feel a welcome in regular VFWs with a bunch of guy, male veterans. I, you know, I, I just don't feel comfortable. And I, but, I, but that is my community at the same time. But there's, there's really no place for us, I still feel like. So um, I don't know. I think it's really important that, that we, offer a, we offer some sort of, you know, space in our communities for for female veterans <clears throat> to, so that we can feel like we're not alone. And, you know, maybe next Veterans Day we won't feel as invisible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Does that make I sense? Think that's, yeah, that makes 100%. And I, I, think it's, I think it's awesome that you're stepping up to be the coordinator for this um, IFVN. I think that's awesome. Um, how can uh, ladies who are in your area – find out more about it you said they have there's a facebook page do they have a website or anything i don't think there's a website um but they can i think they can contact um go on facebook look up idaho female veterans network 
Um, look at the page. Um, see if it's something that you feel like you're interested in and you want to become a member of. And um, then there's a few little – there's other little ones that are popping up all over the place um, that could possibly be closer to where you live in Idaho that you could, you know, maybe attend a, a group gathering and uh, make a new friend. Who knows? But <clears throat> um, – so yeah, you just look it up on Facebook. That's all I know of right now is where of how to uh, get in contact with that group. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of other ones out there, Julia, like you know, uh, Woven and um, uh, the fe- other female veteran network on on Facebook. But I would really, I would really try to um, find one in your local area that you can actually physically go to to get yourself out of your house, get yourself away from <clears throat> away from yourself and out there. Um, you know, engaging with other people. I agree, Tracy. And I think that you have an incredible comeback story. Um, you've, you've been through a lot. You, uh, and I'm sure your story is very similar to other women. Um, and, and I really appreciate the fact that you shared your story here on Voluntold with us. Well, Julia, thank you. Um, and it, it wasn't easy, but I appreciate. I, I'm. I just think that you're a hero. Thank you for oh. your years of service. And um, if your listeners don't already know, you are an amazing person. Did 30 years uh, in the Navy, and now you're helping um, other veterans by doing this podcast. So we really appreciate your service and what you're doing. Oh, you make me blush. <laughs> I really appreciate it, and I, I appreciate your time here today, Tracy. And I thank you, and I hope everybody listening really takes the time to um, consider how they can uh, have a comeback story. Thank you, friends, for joining us today. I hope you enjoy Tracy's incredible comeback story. May we all choose to be part of the generation of women veterans who no longer sit on the sidelines but write our own comeback story. If you enjoyed this podcast today, leave us a comment on our Voluntold Facebook page. Text it to a friend or share it on social media. We truly appreciate your engagement. And friends, if you are struggling with depression, PTSD, alcoholism, or suicide, please seek help. The Suicide Prevention Lifeline's number is 1-800-273-8255. Or go to your local health care provider. Or you can go to va.gov and click on the Veterans Crisis Hotline. Friends, we need each other and we need you. Thank you again for joining us here on the Voluntold Podcast where we, our mission is to spread hope, help, and healing.